Thank you, John and Ariana. Invite you back to Revelation 1, where Don read to us a minute ago. I'll have a couple Sundays then, uh, next Sunday and the week after, to do Easter messages. It's only two weeks away to Easter Sunday. But today, uh, an unrelated message to that, but one that, as I read the book of Revelation this, this month, uh, lingered on these words in uh, chapter 1 and thought, I should preach from this too. This would be a good message. Because I think that here at the beginning of the 21st century, that maybe the greatest issue that we face as Christians is the Word of God. That is, is it really God's Word? Is this from God? Do we have an obligation to it? It's kind of interesting that maybe these things come in 100-year cycles. It was 100 years ago that liberalism was invading our country and telling us that the Bible is not the Word of God. A group of people stood up, called themselves fundamentalists, and combated this error and won, and praise the Lord for it. Uh, and yet that feeling has always been with us. And it seems now 100 years later, we live in a culture and a time where people doubt uh, these kinds of things. As a matter of fact, maybe the issue is that, uh, as someone said, in our culture, in our generation, we, we are defining deviancy down, meaning what used to be considered sin, what used to be considered wrong, is no longer considered that way. People do things today that, you know, 20, 30 years ago would have uh, looked down on. And so as that happens in our society, what happens with the Word of God when we say, thus saith the Lord about these things? It isn't taken very well, the point is. Or maybe the situation is the complacency of the saints. Maybe we're not taking the Word of God as seriously as we should. Maybe we're not reading it, memorizing it, witnessing about it, and making it part of our lives as we should. Maybe that's affected us. Maybe all of these things. But let me remind you of these things. Paul, in his last letter and in the last chapter of his letter, 2 Timothy, says to young Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. No doubt applies to our day. Or you remember Hebrews 4.12, right? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and is discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And then it says, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of, whom, of him with whom we have to do. And so the word of God is still powerful, is it not? It still works. Is still God's word, our generation needs it more than ever before. But let me tell you, God is still using it and is still blessing it. And as Isaiah said, as the rain falls and goes back to God and accomplishes what it's supposed to accomplish, God's word accomplishes what it does too. Let me tell you a story that uh, 
that I was a part of last week. You, you let us go to uh, Montana, and Wednesday night we preached at Bethel Baptist Church in Kalispell, great church. Uh, you know Pastor Pestel. He preached uh, our conference for us one year. We had a good time there on Wednesday night. On Friday night, we did a, I spoke at a sportsman's banquet up in Eureka, and uh, lots of people came from around the area. We did one here a year ago, and up there in Montana, those things really go over well. And, and the best food you ever ate in your life of all of the game and the fowl, fish and fowl and game, uh, we ate. Every bit of it was good. There was one guy there who's a professional cook. I mean, he travels to these contests, you know, and, and enters his, his smoked meat and things like that. He came in second. <laughs> because it was all so good. So I enjoyed that part of it. But I met a young man there. I want to tell you his story a little bit, just to show you how God works. Uh, Actually, you have to go back to his grandfather's generation. His grandfather lived in Kalispell and went to Bethel Baptist Church. And uh, his grandfather then was a godly man, still is. And uh, yet his family moved away to Utah. His kids moved away to Utah. And this happens uh, many times that then the kids weren't churchgoers like dad was. They didn't really take their kids to church as much as dad did back in, in uh, Montana. And so the kids didn't really uh, go to church much. Well, then they had kids. And those kids didn't grow up then in church at all and didn't, didn't know the Lord. And the grandson then, the young man, his name is Dylan. Dylan decided he'd move clear to Hawaii and kind of sow his wild oats and live there, and he did. And so he moved to Hawaii and grew up there by himself, and uh, then uh, met a young girl who was a German-born girl in Hawaii visiting. They met, they fell in love, and they decided to get married. And uh, so she said, well, I want to get married back in Germany in my home, and so I'll go back and get ready, and you join me there. So he said, okay. Well, she was back in Germany, and uh, she got the plane ticket for him from Hawaii to Germany. And for some strange reason, I think of God, uh, he, he had to go through Missoula, Montana. And he said, well, if I have to go through Missoula, Montana, allow me to stay there a week because I've only seen my grandfather up in uh, Kalispell one time in my life, and I want to go see him and meet him. So he got a week layover, flew into Missoula, came up to Kalispell to see his grandfather, whom he did, and they met. His grandfather still, a godly man, goes to the church there. Well, his grandfather and a friend of his had already planned to go to a sportsman's banquet up in Eureka that Friday night. And his friend had a grandson also who had been in church and knew the Lord, but he'd gotten away from the Lord, and he was going to go. And so this grandfather said to Dylan, I want you to go along with us. So the forum, two grandfathers, two grandsons, come to Eureka. Now, I spoke that night on uh, Romans 1.20, as you know, and that is the visible things that God has made give testimony to the existence of God, his eternal power and Godhead, so that all of us are without excuse. And that's what I spoke on in different ways throughout that message. This young man sat there, and it seemed like he was lost totally, <laughs> you know, just out of his element. Yet he ate a lot of food. I did notice that. <laughs> so afterwards, we kind of crossed paths and began to talk. And I asked him, what about what you heard tonight? What do you think? 
I never heard anything like that. I said, do you, do you see a need in your own life? Yeah. We talked, and I gave him the plan of salvation again, which I'd given in the message. He did not receive the Lord as a Savior that night, but he received a gospel track from me with my phone number and my email on it, and he hugged me and said, thank you for what you told me tonight. I'm going to have to think about this. Now, he went on, and as far as I know, he's in Germany and maybe married <laughs> by now. I don't know when the, the date was. But I thought to myself, how odd is it that some young man has to fly to Germany and God arranges it so his plane has to land in Montana, of all places, and he gets to spend a week with his grandfather who decides to come where this young man will hear the gospel and then uh, cry on my shoulder and say, thank you for telling me these things. God, my point is, God's still at work. And God uses his word in ways that, that we can't put together and, and can't imagine what he does. We're just instruments, but we need to be instruments and conduits uh, and channels so that God can use his word through us. We come to Revelation 1, and this word revelation sticks out to me because, you know, there are lots of introductions to books with various different words. Genesis, you know, takes us back to the beginning, obviously. The law of Moses takes us to those desert years and when, when Moses received the law of God. The prophets, the Psalms, all do to our mind a certain thing and put us in a certain uh, uh, frame of mind. Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles. But then we come to the end of the book and we have this word revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation, apocalypse, the Greek word, apocalypsis, is we get that word from it. And that is, when you read it in that language, the first word in the book, apocalypse, revelation, which gives us an emphasis in their language. We're supposed to understand what this is. It's not an apocrypha, which means cryptic and hidden in those books. It's not even the word mystery, which means unknown, but it's a revelation. It's an opening up. It's giving us everything that God wants us to have, letting us know things, an opening up, not a closing. As a matter of fact, someone noticed that the writer of John quotes prophets from the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, out of 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 278 of them refer directly to some prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. This is an opening up, a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice kind of a technicality here. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so good men, commentaries, kind of argue back and forth. Does this mean that it's a revelation from him, or does this mean it's a revelation about him, the revelation of Jesus Christ? I kind of take the latter. It's a revelation about him. And one reason I, I think that is is because all books of the Bible are basically a revelation uh, from him. That, that is, the Godhead is involved in all of those. And here in this verse it says specifically to be from God the Father to him, and not only that, but through an angel. And so I think this passage is unique. May I, may I read to you an old writer 100 years ago named Joseph Seiss. He said, it is a book of which Christ is the great subject and center, particularly in that period of his administrations and glory designated as the day of his uncovering, the day of his appearing. 
It is not a mere prediction of divine judgments upon the wicked and of the final triumph of the righteous made known by Christ, but a book of the revelation of Christ in his own person, offices, future administrations, when he shall be seen coming from heaven as he once was seen going into heaven. It's a revelation that Jesus Christ is still coming, in other words, that he is going to come again. That's the point, and we need to be prepared for that. Even John MacArthur in his book said, Apocalypsis appears 18 times in the New Testament, always used of a person with the meaning of to become visible. And so it's a revelation of Jesus Christ who will become visible one day, folks. And if our generation or our world right now thinks that, well, this is kind of old stuff and people used to preach this and don't believe it anymore, the revelation of Jesus Christ tells us that Jesus Christ is coming again. And he will be revealed to this earth. And all the world will see him and wail because of him, this chapter says, when he returns in glory. And so the Bible reveals that Jesus Christ is our only hope. You have three words in your outline on the, uh, in the bulletin this morning. If you'll follow these, as a matter of fact, as I, as I read these three verses, those were the words that came to my mind, and I've used them. And that is that we have the Bible as a revelation of Scripture, and this book is another revelation from God. Then we find out that God used men to inspire these books like John here in the book of Revelation. And then we're told in verse 3 that the reader of these things, which is you and, and I, we, we can be blessed if we read and understand these things. This is important for us, something that we need to nail home to our hearts and minds. So look with me first at verse 1. It's, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we have said, from God or which God gave unto him. God is the originator here, and not just uh, the fact that, that God excluded the Son, or as some have even thought, well, Jesus maybe in his humanity didn't know these things, and God had to kind of reveal them to him. No, not that. It's, at, it, it's as a present to the Son, it was as if in the Godhead, God said, now this last book will be about you and will exalt you. And it will reveal all that will happen at your glorification when you are glorified and sit on David's throne. As a matter of fact, in uh, verses 4 and 5, you're told that this book is not only from the Father, but from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. That is, within the Godhead, they gave us the Bible. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. Not, but secondly, it's to people. This is for us to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. Aren't you glad he called us servants there? Doulos, douloi. We are servants of his. And uh, being servants, we read this book. We believe this book. We practice what is in this book. And we understand that you have to be a servant of God to understand this book, as I'll talk about illumination a little bit later. Uh, as servants of his, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We can read and we can understand this book. So it's given to his servants to show us things. And then lastly, I want you to notice that the revelation of the Scripture comes by miraculous means because here he says it is by his angel. 
It's kind of a unique arrangement here in the book of Revelation that all throughout this book you find this angel talking to John, and John is always standing before this angel. At one place, John falls at the angel's feet, and the angel says, don't do that. You know, worship God, not me. I'm just like you. I'm just a servant of God too. But here, God gives it to his angel who walks John around heaven and explains these things to John. But whether God did it that way or whether God then used uh, dreams and visions and uh, prophecies of the night, it all comes to us in a miraculous form. You and I can't sit down and write Scripture. You can't just say, well, I feel really inspired today, like some poet or something, and sit down and write something that's equal to this. It has come through inspiration, through miraculous means. Now, by the way, some have wondered if this isn't Gabriel that does this, and it's as good a guess as any, but it is only a guess. We don't know. Gabriel is the one who came to Daniel and, and gave him those magnificent revelations. Gabriel is the one that came to Joseph and Mary and said, you're going to have a child. So maybe he is the messenger of these things, but again, uh, his name isn't mentioned here, so we, we don't know that for sure. But let me point out before we leave verse 1, that statement, it says, which must shortly come to pass. I think, first of all, of the word must. This has to happen, folks. This is prophecy. God's, God's prophecy is like our history. It can't be changed. This is what God knows. This is what God sees. Again, as I said before, you and I see all of history as a movie, frame by frame, and we can understand things we have seen, but we don't know yet things that haven't come up yet. But God sees everything as a snapshot. Everything is one picture from beginning to end. He sees it all at once, and it's all uh, firm in his mind. And so uh, it must come to pass, is my point. And if this Bible says Jesus Christ is going to return, and when he does, look at verse 7 with me. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. These things have to happen. They have to happen as much as creation happened. They have to happen as much as the virgin birth of Christ happened or the resurrection of Christ. These things must come to pass. And then the word shortly is a word that, again, commentators like to have this little discussion about. Does this mean that it will happen suddenly, which this word does is used that way often in the New Testament. In other words, when Jesus comes, whew, it will be quick. Or does this mean soon? It won't be long. Well, it's been 2,000 years, so does it mean that? But, but you know what? I, it, this may seem like a compromising position to you, but I kind of think both are right and have to be right. If something is imminent then it's going to be quick, because if it's not quick, it's not imminent. Does that make sense to you? So, so yes, it could be at any time. It could be shortly. It could be before I'm done speaking, right? And when it happens, not only the rapture is going to be quick, but then the revelation of Jesus Christ seven years later is going to be quick. So both things are true. It must come, and it will come quickly. It will come shortly, 
And so even those of us sitting here in the 21st century, having had this Bible for so long and this book for so long promising these things, we ought to take it as if John just wrote it and the ink still wet on the page. This could happen at any minute. So, by the way, this angel signified it. I like that word too, but it simply means uh, he saw it all. He, it was a sign to him, and John got to see it from beginning to end from this angel, and he writes it all down. Secondly, there's an inspiration here that we see and we ought to see. As I take the name John and include it in the second verse, John who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. There's a writer to these books. There's a writer to every biblical book. We know Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so forth. And, and usually biblical writers did put their names on books so that we know them, and sometimes not. And so there are a few books that we know were inspired by some biblical writer. We may not know exactly who that was, but most of them we have a name and we know. You know what's interesting about this is that this is the last book that John wrote, and he wrote five books. And in the first four books, that is his gospel and his three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John always writes in what we might refer to as the third person. He, he doesn't like to talk about himself, that disciple whom Jesus loved, you know. But it, we know it's John. And when he writes his epistles, the elder unto the elect lady, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, well, we know who the elder is. It's John. But here, John very purposely writes in a first person, and he lets us know specifically this is who he is. So even in verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. In verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion. Chapter 21, verse Verse 2, I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. 22, 8, I, John, saw these things and heard them. So all through this book, John's not giving us any doubt. He's not using a clouded expression about himself. He's saying, I saw this, and he wrote this, and he is the writer of Scripture. These inspired writers, folks, are, are great men. They were men that God used because they were pliable and usable by him. But the Holy Spirit had to come to them and give them this gift of inspiration. They didn't have it naturally. We have some herdsmen. We have some shepherds. We have some uh, royalty. Uh, we have all kinds of writers of, of, the, uh, uh, of the scriptures. But the Holy Spirit had to do it. Listen to Luke in Luke 1.1 1, 1, describing himself in his gospel, in his first book. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also having had perfect understanding of all things. Is there any doubt there that Luke is not referring to the fact that he knew he was writing under inspiration? to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. I know what I'm doing, Luke says. I'm writing under inspiration, just as Matthew has done and Mark has done and John has done, and now I'm doing, and the other New Testament writers will do. And so inspiration of these men is, is a great thing. 
and we have it here as John identifies himself as the writer. There's also a product, though, under inspiration. Not only the writer, but the product. As he says in verse 2, he bear record of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. This is the Word of God. This is the thus saith the Lord. This is what God gave to him and said, this is my word. And we know in inspiration that every word and every letter that is jot and tittle of every word is given by the Holy Spirit so that those writers did not make a spelling error. They gave the word in the tense and the voice and the number and all of that exactly as the Holy Spirit wanted it. Look down at verse 9 again when he says, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not only the word of God, but the testimony of Jesus Christ which is also part of the Word of God. As a matter of fact, this is a revelation about Jesus Christ. And so what he writes down is not only considered the Word of God, it's considered the testimony of, of Jesus Christ. So in verse 9, we have that. In, ver in chapter 12, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Chapter 19, verse 10, worship God, the angel says to him, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So throughout this book, this, this book, that what is contained here is called the word of God, is called the testimony of Jesus Christ. Not only that, of all things that he saw. Remember uh, that, that uh, he signified it by his angel unto his servant John. All things that he saw are the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ it probably would be worth mentioning the last of the book in chapter 22, again, where he said uh, in those verses, for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Because you can't do it without inspiration. You can't add to it. Someone may have added a book and they call it apocrypha, but it's not given by inspiration. This is the last of it. And then he says, if any man shall take away from the words of the of book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. It's a serious thing. To dig into it and add to it or to take away from it. Either one, one is just as bad as the other. And now here is the last book. Old William Wordsworth, an old commentator, said, the apocalypse completes the canon of Scripture. And with reverence, be it said, the sacred canon would be imperfect without it. It would be incomplete unless we had this revelation of Jesus Christ. So here is the inspiration of these things. Let me emphasize again, too, that then this book that we have, as a matter of fact, this faith that you and I have called Christianity, called the Word of God, is a revelation and nothing else in this world has ever been, is, or ever will be a revelation except this. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every other thought has originated in the mind of human beings, not in the mind of God. This book has originated in the mind of God. 
Now, this world can't handle such a thing. As a matter of fact, to, to this world, that seems very biased, doesn't it? That you and I would say, well, you're saying that the book that you have is all, the only word of God and no other religious book and no other religion and no other uh, holy person, uh, so to speak, uh, has the word of God. That's just not logical. And I say it is logical. To say that two contradictory things can both be true is what's not logical. It's called the old uh, law of non-contradiction to say, well, these two things, you know, the, the Scripture itself, the, the Bible, and, and the Koran, which conflict and have contradictory statements in hundreds if not thousands of places, they both can be true. It's not logical. Either one of them is true or neither of them, but not both of them. And here is a book that says only this is true. This is the only way to God. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And think about it, folks. Has any other person who lived on this earth been virgin-born, lived a sinless life, claimed to be the Son of God, died and rose again, and died for our sins, giving us a redemption? I challenge you, read any other religious book in this world and find redemption in it. You do not find a redemption other than through the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is given in this book. Now, I'll also say this book is both broad and narrow. It's narrow because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, but it is very broad. Whosoever will may come. It is for every human being, every child of Adam, everyone who finds himself a sinner, and we all should. This book is given for you and for us. So, Here's a revelation of God. Here's an inspiration uh, uh, of the Scripture. And thirdly, there's an illumination of the Scripture. So, blessed, notice I say blessed, not blessed. We'll, we'll reserve our blesseds for the, for the Trinity and not for you and me. But uh, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep, notice the three things, those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. The illumination of the Spirit. You and I have the Spirit of God. The natural man that doesn't have the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14, cannot understand the Bible because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit who wrote this, teaching him what he wrote means. You and I have the author of this book living within us. And therefore, you and I can be blessed by reading it. And we should read it. Now, you may also or already know that there are seven... They're called Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Seven times you have this expression, blessed, or if you want to say blessed. And you can easily find those. Maybe you have them in your references. But there are seven of these, and this is the first one. So here's the first Beatitude, if you will. Blessed is he. And then in this first Beatitude then, or blessing, there are three requirements. In other words, you don't just get blessed automatically because you're a believer, you got to do something here with this book. And so what is that? And that's where we begin. Three things, to read it, to understand it, and believe it. Notitia, ascensus, fiducia. You've got to hear it. If you never read it, if, you, if, if you're never exposed to it, how can you believe it? You think this just drifts into your mind? Uh, at night while you're dreaming and, and then you have it in your head, you have to do something with this book, don't you? You have to read it. And by the way, aren't you glad God gave it to us in pen and ink? 
in a way we can read and understand. So we have to, we have to do that. And by the way, somebody says, well, you know, the Bible's so difficult. It's so difficult to read. And I'm thinking to myself, have you read some computer instruction about a program lately? <laughs> have you read a bill from Congress lately? I mean, come on, this is, this is so difficult you can't understand it? No, and if it is God's Word, and we're convinced of that, if it is deeper, if it is more difficult, doesn't that simply require us to dive deeper? Doesn't it require us then to spend more time and more effort in that? Yes. And so if that's what it is to you, fine. Go back, shift your transmission back to first gear, and put it in plow gear and start through. If it takes you a year to read it, I don't know, but read it and read it carefully because a blessing is there for you, but you have to read it first. So reading it, notitia. That's just like, how can, how can someone believe the gospel, Paul says in Romans 10, who's never heard? How can somebody believe if they've never heard it? And he's going to say, therefore, how can they hear without a preacher, right? Somebody has to go and give them the words, and then they hear it. Oh, that's what it is. Well, the same thing with you when you read the, the Word of God. Secondly, they have to hear it. And it says, uh, they that hear the words of this prophecy. Now, don't you see in there and understand that that means understanding it? That is not just saying again, hearing it through your ears, you have to hear it that way, but rather understanding. As a matter of fact, go to chapter 2, probably right across your page, and verse 7, which he will say to every church seven times, he that hath an ear, let him what? Hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What does he mean there? Understand it. Not just audibly hear it, but understand it. And so the ascensus part is, once I hear it or am exposed to it by reading, I've got to understand. I've got to give assent. I've got to say, yes, that's what it means. I believe it. Now, someone may read this book, and many have, and said, I don't believe this stuff at all. I don't believe that Jesus will come out of the sky and ascend uh, to the earth and, and reign on, uh, you know, in Jerusalem on David's throne. I don't believe that. And many people have read it and come to that conclusion. No census. They read it, but they didn't hear it. They didn't have ears to hear. But you have the Holy Spirit, and you are convinced that this is the Word of God, so read it and understand it is the point. And then thirdly, keep it. That is, believe it. That is, fiducia. Believing to change. This is, this is how you accepted Christ. You accepted him truly. You said, I hear it, I believe these things, and now I'm accepting it as my own. You have to do that with the Word of God. You have to do that with this book. This is the process of illumination. This is the process that we have for reading the Word of God and, and hearing it and understanding it. There's a great invitation at the end of this book in chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, 
come. Let him that heareth come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. I think the greatest one-word invitation in the Bible is come. If you, if you hear these things and it sinks into where you understand what it is saying to you, come. That is what the Bible says to the lost person, but that is also what it says to you and me. We must come to it, believe it, take it, and live it out. So one other thought before we close this morning, and that is that very last statement at the end of verse 3, for the time is at hand. The time is near. The time will come. As again, it's, it's imminent, I-M-M-I-N, meaning it could happen at any moment. It could happen, the, the first part of this, the rapture that will take place, and then this uh, tribulation period, and then the return of Christ, and then the thousand-year reign, which I'm going to speak about tonight, by the way. This is all at hand, near. The word at hand, ingus, means near. <laughs> it's near. It could happen at any time. It's imminent, and it will happen quickly, as we said, when it comes. So let me say, folks, your time is near. Maybe you're listening to my voice this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior. I would admonish you to understand your time is near. It could be that Jesus will come in your lifetime. It could be that it will come before I'm done with this message. And if it does and you are lost, where are you? But you only have this life. You only have a few years left. There have been thousands of years go by and you only have a few years left. It's near for you too. And you don't have much time to deal with this. Deal with it while you can. Now, while you hear it, understand it and come to him. God's reaching out, drawing you. He does it by his word and his spirit. And he's saying to you, come. I trust that you would today. And you as believers who know the Lord and trust that this is his word, read it, understand it, and put it to practice in your life. And the Lord will give you a blessing because of it. Stand now with me, if you will. So we come to the end of this message, we're going to stand and we're going to bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his blessing and help at this time. Father, we have read your word, a part of it, but we believe it all from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, from the first word to the last, knowing that it's inspired of you. And it weighs heavily upon us, Lord, because we know that the truths in here are true. There is an eternity to deal with. There's a heaven, there's a hell, and both are eternal. We know that it says that Jesus Christ is the way to you through his death, burial, and resurrection. We know that people that even die willingly ignorant will die lost, and we have the truth. So Father, help us in this understanding and this urgency that we have. And then, Father, we praise you for revealing to us that Jesus Christ is coming back. He's not just left and gone to heaven and has no more thought about us, but he's waiting to the, to the restitution of all things, to come back and reign on this earth. And so, Father, we're looking forward to that. Help us to see that and live as though it could be at any moment. And then, Father, I pray that there's someone that has heard this and doesn't know Christ as Savior. They've heard John and the angel both say, come, come and take of the water of life freely. I pray that he or she would do that. 
And so, Father, now bless as we sing a song, as we let these words sink into our hearts. Do your work in hearts today, and we'll thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing and John comes and leads us in the song, our invitation is always